Hi, Janina. How are you, man? How you doing? I'm not bad. How are you doing? Ah, you know, clicking along. Yeah. It's raining in Belfast, so beautiful, horrible day. Yeah. But can't complain. Otherwise, got a cup of coffee. I'm sitting in my comfy chair. I'm about to talk about some weird saints with you. <laughs> what more could I want in life? Yeah. It's not too bad. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I'm finally over the horrible, horrible cold that lasted way longer than a cold should. I feel like if a cold lasts more than two days, you're getting really ripped off. Yeah. You do sound significantly healthier than you did last time. (laughs) I don't think that that is hard. Some may say that this is the intervention of a good lord, and they're fine to say that. Yeah, sure, sure. Some may say your suffering was saintly. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing is, is that Deciding that you're a good person gives you leave to decide that all your your suffering is saintly and that it's because yeah. of how wonderful you are rather than just because sometimes everything is bad for everyone. Sometimes you don't even have to be that good a person. Sometimes you just do a miracle. You can be a real dickhead otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the question this week is from Demi and Hammerschmidt and is who are the most badass saints and martyrs mm-hmm. of which... I have chosen it almost exclusively the ones from before the 5th century because I think they are the most badass ones and also that is the period that I love the most. Yeah, I think I have one from the 11th century and everyone else is like pretty early, 2nd, 3rd century. Yeah. The problem is when you get past the bits where people are setting people on fire for being a Christian or when they were doing like really hardcore miracles, like moving buildings and like smiting people properly, like the more modern ones where you've got actual sources for them and they're all like, and then he gave his money to the poor and built a church. Mm, and retired end. to a monastery forever. Um, yeah, yeah, you're like, mm. <laughs> back in the day, they were killing seals for being too angry. And I feel like you're letting me down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really? And it gets worse. So I did this thing on Netflix. It came out last year mm-hmm. called Mysteries of the Faith, which is about holy relics. Yeah. And from Doing that, I learned that the theology of the Catholic Church changed quite significantly in the 20th century when it comes to making saints and canonizing people. And Francis is well into this. So when you look at like the list of saints that have been made by each pope on Wikipedia, Mm -hmm. some of them don't have any. Loads of them don't have any. Some of them will have like 10 or 11. And sometimes you'll get like a real jump and they'll be like, oh, 15 saints that this one guy made. (laughs) So just as like sometimes Pope loves to make a a bunch of saints and just does it. Yeah. And then you get down to Francis as of last year, when I last checked, had made 912. Wow. That's that's so many. (laughs) Because Pope Benedict and uh, Pope Francis as well are really into this thing called the universal call to holiness. Uh Uh-huh. And the belief that you don't have to be exceptional to be a saint. So most saints are made saints because they are they do something unbelievably exceptional, like die for their faith or dedicate their entire life or like really suffer or do something that makes people go, oh my God, they're so incredibly exceptional as Christians that so they get to have this thing. Mm. But now since the 1920s been this interpretation that there is divinity and holiness within ordinary situations so you don't actually really need to do very much now to become a saint (laughs) well that's nice 
Is yeah, it, like, I mean, in order to become like actually canonized, you do still need a couple of like miracles. But in order to be beatified, and the bar for miracles has frankly dropped. Like, mm. but now there's like a lot, a lot more saints of modern saints than there used to be. Yeah, that's pretty good though. Why not? You know. Yeah, but what that means is that their stories are rubbish because it's like, oh, he uh, was a bishop and then he healed someone's back pain. Yeah, sure, sure. There's even like <laughs> when, when I was doing my research, I found like an honorable mention one, this samurai called Justo Takayama, which got me really excited because I was like a samurai who might be a saint. Like there is a cam- ongoing campaign for him to be canonized, but he's only so far been beatified. But then all there is like he was a samurai, he did some samurai stuff, but he also was a Christian and like was kicked out of Japan for being a Christian. It's like, okay, that's... It's not yeah. that exciting though. I want like some stunts. I want some specific. I, I want someone to be smoted. Yeah. The, uh, the one that they talked about a lot, I've forgotten his name now, but he was a prosecutor in Southern Italy who was very into prosecuting the mafia in the 90s mm-hmm. and believed it to be part of his religious duty to kind of end corruption. But he prosecuted loads of mafia people and then got shot by the mafia. Sure. And there's been he's been beatified and there was a real push and they've turned to the shirt that he was wearing when he was shot into a relic and they've like encased it in silver and carry it around. And you're like, that's very cool that you did that. Yeah. I mean, but... we, we turn, let's be fair, we turn lots of things into relics that have nothing to do with the Catholic Church or sainthood. Right. Like Marilyn Monroe's dresses are relics of her yes. now. It just doesn't have religious connotations. It's a different... Technically, a relic as... should be doing miracles. So a proper good, a proper sainted relic, um, and as a saint as well, because basically they should have like extra God power in them. So they should be closer to God and more holy, and therefore they should be able to, to do miracles. And as far as I'm aware, Marilyn Monroe's dress has not done any miracles, except somehow make Kim Kardashian look really bad. She looked so bad in it. Like so that was really that impressive dress. how uh, she, like a, an objectively very beautiful woman looked very, very bad in that dress. I read a thing about it actually that was very interesting. This is not at all relevant to the episode, but like uh, it was a fashion person talking about why Kim Kardashian looked so bad in that dress. And it was basically because it was designed to make Marilyn Monroe look naked. So it was her yes. perfect skin tone and it was also worn over her body whereas kim kardashian was packed with shapewear and it was the wrong color for her so she just looked washed out and weird and bad yeah yeah don't wear other people's other people's clothing yeah don't but so before we start i'm going to tell you about one rubbish saint which links to next week last week and also do a correction from last week because somebody emailed great and so the rubbish saint is that the great grandson of pope alexander the sixth who we talked about significantly last episode got to be a saint Francis Borgia, mm-hmm. 1510-72, is became a Jesuit priest, gave up his dukedom, gave away all his money to the poor and kind of stomped it out a lot, and he gets to be a saint. So technically the Borgias are so pretty good that they ended up with not only like two popes, but, <laughs> but also a, a saint, saint. Three popes and a saint. That's pretty, that's pretty good. That's a pretty strong result. It is pretty strong. And the correction is that I said that papal bulls are always infallible, but somebody emailed to correct me and said it's only when the Pope specifically says that he is speaking ex-cathedra that it is papal infallibility. So if he doesn't say specifically ex-cathedra, then it's not infallible. So I take that back and correct it. Great. (laughs) And thank you to the person who emailed that, whose name I did not write down. I apologize. (laughs) But... But so that is a link from last week to this week that, yeah, we'll talk about some badass saints. Do you want to go first or shall I? Well, I think you found more than me, so you go first. 
Okay, all of mine are ancient and mostly come from periods either during or immediately after the Roman persecutions because my favorite thing in the whole, whole world that no one ever lets me write about is actually early Christianity and the creation of early Christianity and the conditions under which Christian theology was created. Mm-hmm. And so my first one is St. Blandina, who was one of the many people, a couple of hundred people who were killed during a very big persecution in Lyon mm-hmm. and Vienne during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, so it's 177 CE, overseen by everybody's favorite very gay man, Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> this is my new thing, which is uh, every time somebody buys meditations by Marcus Aurelius is asked if they've read his letters and then hope that they go home and Google it and find his letters to all of the men he wrote sex letters to. <laughs> That's, you are doing the Lord's work. That's perfect. I am. <laughs> Anyway, so during his reign, there was this terrible, terrible persecution which occurred in Lyon. Hundreds of people died during it. They were fully like rounded up and tortured. And what happens when you are being arrested and and prosecuted as a Christian, which is laid out in the first time that we see Christians in Roman texts by Pliny, is Mm -hmm. that the Roman governor or judge will say, are you a Christian? And the person says either yes or no. And if they say yes, then they're asked again. And they're repeatedly asked, like, are you a Christian? And if they stop saying that they're a Christian, then they're basically allowed to go home. (laughs) (laughs) This is why all you had to do to be a saint at this time is just like refuse to say that you're not a Christian, right? There are loads of them. Which is why I kind of love it, because it's actually very hard under those circumstances. Like it's really easy to say, okay, yeah, no, I take it back. I am actually not a Christian. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. And then you can just go home and live your life. Like, <laughs> But it's actually very hard to keep saying, yes, I am. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. In front of like the whole of the Roman apparatus. And there's various people who are arrested at this time. And one of them is this girl who is enslaved called Blandina about whom the anonymous person who wrote writes, wrote a letter about these to the church in Rome, which ended up in Eusebius. And it says, through Blandina, Christ shows that the things that appear to men mean and deformed and contemptible, being women, are in God <laughs> deemed worthy of great glory. <laughs> <laughs> How nice for us. Yeah, basically they have just, because she is young and she's female and she's enslaved and they have this real opinion that enslaved people are deformed in some way, like mentally, <laughs> that she would be too weak to confess to Christianity and certainly be too weak to continue confessing to Christianity. But as it happened, she was basically, they could not stop her from confessing to Christianity. (laughs) They started off by kind of just trying her and giving her the general mild tortures. Then they threw her to the beasts. Classic. They hung her on a stake and exposed her as food to unnamed wild beasts. But she looked so much like Christ on the cross and she kept praying really loudly. So the beasts refused to touch her and it made everybody uncomfortable, which (laughs) led the writer to say about her, although she was an insignificant, weak and despised woman, (laughs) she was clothed with the great and invincible athlete Christ. (laughs) So that didn't work. So they threw her again to the beasts and the beasts again refused to touch her. So they started torturing her in the arena. They, They would do this thing where they would heat up an iron chair and then put a person in it. So they did that and roasted her in an iron chair and then they tied her up in a net and cast her to a bull who they annoyed on purpose so that it would be cross imagine if that was your job annoying the bull 
Well, so do you want to know how they annoyed the bull? Yes, obviously. In bullfighting, they stab them like through the neck. Yeah. In the Roman arena, when they when they wanted to annoy the bull, they would touch its genitals with a red hot poker. That would be annoying. I would be annoyed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It is really annoying. So they do that. So everybody's suffering in this situation, which kind of threw her around. And it, she still wouldn't die and she still wouldn't stop confessing that she was a Christian. So eventually they stabbed her. Simpler, but really. I like Mandina because she appears with this very long letter of descriptions of terrible things happening to these martyrs in Lyon and Vienne. And all of them are men, but they just really go out of their way to both firstly be impressed by her, but also just say terrible things about her condition in life. Like she suffers... <laughs> being an enslaved woman and she converts and then she is arrested and she has to go through all this shit and everybody's just like god i really never would have expected that you an insignificant and pointless person (laughs) could ever have had this amount of strength (laughs) and she also didn't like lose her temper and punch anybody in the face for saying these things so that's saint blandina i mean that that, you do deserve sainthood for that what a badass go go blandina my first one is Saint Adjuta of Vernon, who is my only, my most modern saint. He was born in July 1073, the son of the Count of Vernon. Mm-hmm. And he, Always poshos. Yeah. Obviously, he was a posho in 1073, so he went on a crusade. Obviously. And in 1095, this is phrased in different ways in different things I read. He either, he was captured while on a crusade, and he either escaped by swimming and returned Mm -hmm. to France, or escaped and swam back to France. Damn. Which is much, much more impressive. I hope it's that one. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I think given that we can't know the truth... We should may as well say it's that one. The one story puts it that he and his troops, he had 200 men, and they were captured near Antioch, which is modern-day Antakya, which is in Turkey, kind of near the Syrian border and the coast, like... Yeah, in that little in that little pocket of Turkey that slips down the side. Yeah, <laughs> so they were ambushed by a force of one thousand five hundred Moorish forces, who obviously defeated them because there were only two hundred of them. Yep. So uh, Ajuta prayed, and he promised that if he was saved, he would donate his hunting grounds and his hunting lodge on the banks of the River Seine to a monastery. And then there was yep. immediately a thunderstorm, and he managed with his again, troop of 200, to successfully counterattack and defeat the opposing forces of 1,500 men. And then apparently he swam to France. Or the other version is that (laughs) uh, St. Madeleine and St. Bernard appeared and freed him from his chains and just flew him to his hunting lodge through the sky. That's even better. It's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. that. I mean, it feels more realistic than swimming to France from Turkey. (laughs) From Turkey, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> like, that's I don't a really know if long you're way. meant to believe that he swam in one like journey or if he like, stopped go. off in Greece for a rest. I don't know. Or maybe, maybe it was like laps or like, yeah. Yeah. Every so often would like swim 15 miles and then have a rest for a few weeks. Yeah. Um, and and then be like, no, 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 I'm not getting on your ship. I'm continuing to swim to France. <laughs> and no, don't give me a horse. I'm going to swim. Yeah. <laughs> No, this is, I'm, I'm dedicated to this now. This is my... I've, I've got a TikTok about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
So that's pretty good. I like a good crusader that doesn't come across completely awful. Yeah, I mean, they don't really talk about like what he did on the crusades. <laughs> Just I skip think, right over I those think going on a crusade is pretty bad. Yeah. But they don't really get into any of his daring do over there. So for all we know, he <laughs> never he never did a religiously motivated murder at all. You know. Okay, I hope not. He just did the swimming and the just occasionally the harrying people. Um, yeah. He did some self-defense and then he had a, had a big swim. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and for that, sainthood. Not bad. <laughs> okay, my second one is another very ancient one and is top five all-time favorite saint, I would say. Uh-huh. And I love her because she is in my book. So if you have read my book or if you ever wish to know more about St. Perpetua, then you can buy my book. You should. It's very good. Because Perpetua is wonderful. She is technically, if you read her story, like as somebody else has written it, it's really generic because it is a very, like, there are obvious beats to martyrdom stories that Mm -hmm. come up over and over and over and over again. And they are a girl. She walks away from her life. She's always from a a high-class family after like the second century. Yeah. She's a high-class family. She walks away from her life. She, everybody's real mad at her about it. They torture her and then she dies in the arena or being stabbed somehow because (laughs) she's so strong that nothing will kill her. And that is basically her story. But the thing that makes Perpetua completely unique is that she wrote a diary of her experience while she was in prison. And she wrote about her arrest and her imprisonment and her trial from her perspective. Mm -hmm. And it is completely different from anything else that is written about early Christian saints and martyrs. And really shows how frightening it was because what you get when you are reading martyrologies mm-hmm. which I love to read <laughs> to a, a deeply weird degree <laughs> and I love this stuff so much but when you what you get is because by definition a martyrology is written by somebody who was there and who is a Christian and who was during the persecutions and somehow did not get arrested or punished. <laughs> and so by you have definition... To assume that they were like, I'm just not going to tell anyone because someone's going to survive to write it down. <laughs> kind of, yeah. But because of that, they basically have a very vested interest in saying, oh my God, these people are so amazing. Like they're so yeah. extraordinary. They weren't afraid at all. They were completely without fear because they were just like, glowing with the eternal light of heaven and they are closer to God in their soul and they are chosen by God. And as a result, they do things that no normal human, i.e. myself, could ever possibly do. So they are just essentially their job is to do PR for the early church. Exactly. But also to excuse why they didn't do it, because they are not extraordinary people. They're not superhuman. Mm. They weren't chosen by God to do this. So that's why they didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but through Perpetua, you see that like these people are not superhuman, chosen by God, lacking fear, like they kind of come across as assholes quite often. She writes about the fact that she is very, very frightened and she's very, very upset. And there are all of these conversations that she has with her father in particular, where he is like tearing his hair out. He is lying on the floor and crying. And she's like, I'm so sorry, but I'm a Christian. There's nothing I can do about it. Like I 
wouldn't be doing this if I didn't have to. Yeah. But she also writes a lot about her son. So she is breastfeeding at the time. She's 22. She's just had a son and she is still breastfeeding her baby exclusively. Mm-hmm. And so there is a lot of, she writes about being tormented mostly in the prison. So she says she was taken into prison and I was much afraid because I had never known such darkness. There was a great heat because of the press of people. There was cruel handling by the soldiers and I was most tormented by the care for my child because she doesn't have him. Mm. And eventually she persuades people to let her have her son in prison. And she says, such care as I suffered for many days and I obtained that my child should abide with me in prison. And straight away I became well and was like of my labor and suddenly the prison was made a palace for me so that I would sooner be there than anywhere else Mm. which is a perspective that you never see ever like (laughs) motherhood is just not something that you ever see loving motherhood is so rare after her trial they take away her son and she is distraught and she is praying and she experiences a miracle which is that her son is miraculously weaned because she's really worried he's going to starve to death which he would, like... Yeah. Unless they can find a witness for him. There's no other alternative. Yeah. yeah. But they would have had to find a witness, but she's really worried that that won't happen for whatever reason. But also she has the pain of producing milk that's not going anywhere. Yeah. And we've both known nursing mothers and know that they will stop, like, being genuine pain yeah. and leaking because their breasts fill with milk and it has to go it somewhere. It has to go somewhere. And it's not very pleasant to have that happen to you. Um, and so she is suffering with that and she writes about the fact that she is suffering from the physical pain of having swollen breasts Mm. and her milk miraculously dries up. And that's basically the main miracle. The rest of her miracles are visions, which are delightful visions. There's quite a good one about her climbing up a ladder and then fighting an Egyptian athlete that she's very rude about um, and then stamping (laughs) on the athlete's head and she being miraculously turned into a man that has this amazing sentence in the history of gender history where she uses the feminine I and then says, I am a man, in which she manages to say she is both female and male in the same sentence, which is something you can do with with gendered languages, (laughs) and uh, which is a real cool vision that she has. But the more important thing is her experience experience of her like uh, physical experience in prison and how afraid she is and how she comforts herself with these visions and this this idea that she is going to defeat the devil and then when somebody afterwards wrote up her actual martyrdom she's thrown into the arena and everybody's really stressed out because she is visibly naked and the girl that she's thrown in with gave birth 24 hours previously and everybody's like "Ooh, no we don't want to see this <laughs> uh, and then she's trampled by a cow for a while and then they stab her mm. but the experience the way that she writes about the experience of of, of being an actual woman in prison yeah and it's not just like an unafraid superhuman, but it's an actual real life woman who is doing for whatever reason the thing that she thinks is the right thing to do and being kind of sad about it makes yeah. her m- kind of more badass than all the rest of them. Yeah. And I mean, it, because it makes her a person and most of the time they don't feel like people. Saints don't feel like people. No. Yeah. I mean, this, seem- is, this is one of the reasons that like the story of Christ works, right? It's because you see him suffer and you see him beg to not be crucified. Like you see that it is difficult and hard and that he approaches it like a person would, which was like with with a lot of reluctance. And then saint stories don't usually get that, that part of the story shown. 
because they very do not often get to write their own story. No. And so they very rarely get to say, and then she was very upset about the fact that she missed her mum. Yeah. <laughs> and then she had to be martyred and she did not want to. She just didn't want yeah. to. But she felt that she had to for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. She's very cool. My second one is St. Lawrence. A classic. Yeah. Cl- a classic. What a guy. So he was born around 225, probably in um, Huesca. I think that I, I'm probably pronouncing that badly. Maybe Valencia, but probably uh, Huesca. He traveled mm-hmm. with Pope Sixtus II, uh, who once he was uh, became Pope, made him made Lawrence a deacon and then eventually the Archdeacon of Rome. Um, Sixtus was executed in 258, um, mm-hmm. at which point the prefect of Rome demanded that all the riches of the church be turned over to him to. Um, to Rome, essentially. And Lawrence said that it would take him three days to get all that wealth together to hand it over. But what he did instead was distribute it among the poor of the city. And then after three days, uh, when the prefect came back to demand the money, he presented the city's poor and suffering, saying, these are the treasures of the church. Here you go. (laughs) Here here are my treasures. Here are my treasures. All of these poor people, uh, which is outstanding. And then the legend is, uh, and this may be because of a slight misspelling, <laughs> that this legend uh, about him is is uh, prolif- proliferated. But mm-hmm. uh, it goes that the prefect had Lawrence put on a gridiron that was heated with hot coals uh, to just roast on this gridiron. And then after a while, Lawrence said, I'm well done on this side. Turn me over. Uh, which is also <laughs> great. It's likely he was just decapitated. Which is what yeah. usually happened, but that's not as fun. <laughs> it's not as fun. You could, it's real hard to spin, and then they cut his head off into a good story. It really is. Yeah. Whereas, see, this is what I'm saying about like the oh yeah, they're they're, they're totally unbothered by anything and completely like yeah. just doing quips while they while they roast to death. <laughs> yeah, that is how blessed by God they are, and that's why <laughs> you can ask them questions and yeah. they will. And they haven't already. It for you collapsed from the physical trauma they're undergoing yeah and that's why st lawrence is a classic yeah okay i'm now moving into the next stage of early christianity which is when persecutions have ended mm-hmm. mostly anyway they're still they're about to start persecuting Aryans, but we don't count Aryans as christians anymore so uh, <laughs> <laughs> ask me any time for a conversation about Aryanism, but today is not the day <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as soon as they stopped persecuting Christians in the Roman Empire and started being Christian instead, and when all of the emperors were Christian and started taking sides in theological disputes about the nature of Christ and the Godhead, they had to find a new way in order to be an exceptional Christian because once you can't die for Christianity really anymore, you just have to suffer horribly for it. Mm instead. And what you get is the emergence of aestheticism and monasticism as lifelong pursuits that people do. And the OG Desert Father and an all-time great is St. Anthony the Great, who managed to live for 104 years. That's too long. He must have been so tired. I'm tired now, you know? (laughs) Which, when I... There's a line about this in one of my books and my editor thought there was a typo because he was like, he can't possibly have been alive. (laughs) (laughs) 
104 years. But that is what the story is. His life is written by a guy called Athanasius who did meet him and spent a lot of time with him, much to Antony's great distress. But it is a first-person account of his life, at least, which is useful. He is Egyptian. He is quite a, a loner as a kid. His parents die when he is 20 and his first job is immediately he gives away everything he has and goes into the desert. And desert aestheticism is just starting and at the time is mostly people kind of walling themselves up into huts and buildings, but kind of on the outskirts of towns because somebody still needs to come and bring you your bread and things like that. But he takes it extra hard and he basically finds out what everybody else is doing and then decides that he's going to do all of them. And he starts off by living in like a hut and then he walks quite far out into the desert and moves into an abandoned fort, a fort that is ancient even at the time. And he spends his time torturing his body. As you do. He tries to see how long he can go without sleep. This is the thing. If God isn't going to ask you to suffer in some way that it happens to you, you have to make yourself suffer for God, whether or not he wants exactly. it. Exactly. And the, the theology of it basically is, to, to boil it down, basically that what separates humans from angels and what the punishment for sin is the human body. Basically, the physical body is what separates us from angels and therefore that needs to be punished. And the more that you can make your body suffer the closer you will be getting to an angelic spiritual state yeah like i came across a lot who just are saints because when they died they were found to have been walking around with like ropes tied so tight around themselves that it was like cutting into them and that was yeah proof of devotion to god Exactly. And this is a kind of thing that, that Anthony loves to do. So he, he doesn't sleep as much as possible. When he does sleep, he'll just lie on the bare floor. And for a treat, he lies on a rush mat. He will go, in general, he will only eat one meal every two days. He will try and go every four days. Although I feel like this is mentioned at the beginning of his life. And then Athanasius very much stops mentioning how much he eats to the uh-huh. extent that you, and starts mentioning a lot how healthy he always looks right up until his old age. So I do strongly suspect he might have given up the starving himself thing. <laughs> well, that's fair but, enough because they do go on about how healthy he is for a long time. He has like a quite a severe illness at the beginning, which like, the reason that I love Athanasius's life of Antony a lot is that he describes every kind of setback that Antony has as though it is a literal fight with a literal demon. So he will describe, <laughs> it's like he's describing a wrestling match. This one time he had a really bad cold. <laughs> yeah. Like, so he'll talk about them, like him like wrestling with demons and being lashed by the demons and talking to the demons. And, and it talks about it as though he is describing you know, a cage match, but mm-hmm. but it's just him being kind of sick <laughs> and or horny. It's always horny. They're always yeah. fighting being horny. That Yeah, they real suffer with that one. So he, wear, he also wears a hair shirt, obviously, and he never bathes and he never takes his repulsive clothes off until they rot off. So he's also stinky. But because there was no television or internet, this kind of thing was enormously popular in the third and <laughs> fourth century. And so people would go and see him and visit him. And loads of people kept turning up and insisting upon being his disciples. And even more people would turn up and come and ask him, to be there, like arbitrate their disputes and things like that. And he kind of put up with having 
disciples for like 20 years until eventually he was just like, look, I can't deal with this anymore. I'm, I'm trying to be a hermit. <laughs> like yeah, I want to talk to you. I don't want to deal with your problems. I want to go to the desert. So he retreats even further into the desert and forbade anyone to come with him because as soon as he says, right, I'm going off to his new place, loads of people are like, oh, we'll come. <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 you stay here. I'm going to the desert. Uh, people still go with him because Athanasius is there and people keep coming and asking him questions. And there's his response to all of them is like, can you please just fuck off? <laughs> so... There's this guy called Fronto who turns up and he his sickness is that he used to bite his own tongue and was in danger of injury to his eyes, which is a mystery. Sure. Um, there's no further yeah. information about what is wrong with him, but it's not as good as the next one that he cures. But still, I'm fascinated by that. And Anthony's like, go away and you will be healed. And Fronto <laughs> will not go, but stays for days until he gets violent. And he's like screaming and throwing things and saying, cure me. And Anthony tells him, look, if you stay here, you will never be healed. But as soon as you go away, I promise you'll be healed. If you just really, really need to get the fuck away from me. Um, <laughs> and that is what he does to everybody who comes to him. He's like, if you leave, you'll be healed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I respect it. This is what I'm going to start saying to people who are still in my house at 11 at night. Yeah. Another woman comes to him because, a direct quote, the runnings of her ears and nose and eyes fell to the ground and immediately became worms. Also, she was paralysed and had a squint. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That is> beautiful. <laughs> yeah, so I do feel that the fact that whenever she sneezed or cried, whatever, and also whatever was coming out of her ears was becoming worms on the ground is very stressful, to be fair. And the squint yeah. probably didn't need to be mentioned. But I, I just, what the hell? Anyway, Anthony is like, <laughs> if you leave, you will be cured. Please get the fuck away from me. Also disgusting. Uh, <laughs> now my cave is full of worms. <laughs> yeah. But the more he does this, and then everybody goes home and is like, I'm cured, I'm cured. Uh, he very much gives Life of Brian vibes. <laughs> like... <laughs> Like people shouting that they're cured of things. Like he used to bite his own tongue and was in danger of injury of his eyes. Is like that's not a thing. I do no. not know what that is. But you just stop biting your tongue and then and do not have an injury to your eyes and you're cured. Yeah. And my tears no longer turn into worms feels like a very easy thing to claim that you're cured of. But he gets so famous um, and people are constantly coming out and saying it that eventually the emperor Constantius writes to him and he's so annoyed he won't even open the letter. <laughs> And um, eventually he's persuaded by some people who just will not, like who have just moved in with him basically to open it. And he's just like with a massive sigh says, all right. And then well, write back something generic about being uh, clemency. And then after 104 years of enduring people following him around relentlessly and asking him questions and just not leaving him alone, he died. And for that... <laughs> <laughs> doing everything he humanly could to get away from people and accidentally making himself really famous and then we still talk about him and presumably if he's up in heaven like next to god people are still praying to him being like can you help me out with this he's like go away <laughs> uh yeah god bless him anthony the great fantastic that rules um okay my next one is saint mercurius which is a mm -hmm. great name um, he he is the for, on my list. He is what who I am calling the anime bullshit saint, uh, <laughs> which yep. I mean in a in a good way. Uh, it's complimentary, obviously. Um, so he's also from around 
225. He is from a Scythian family who had converted to Christianity. There is some guff about like them converting because of a vision about him, but that's not, that's that's just boring. Like they just had a vision that their son was going to be, you know, important, which I guess he was because we're talking about him now. <laughs> so he enlisted in the Roman army under Decius. Mm-hmm. Who uh, the story every account, which I guess are all sound the same because they're all pulling from the same sources, talks about Decius being real scared. Like they were in a yeah. battle against the Berbers and Decius was absolutely terrified. But luckily his friend Mercurius was there and he was like, No, it's okay, I've got this, we've got this, it's gonna be fine. And he had a wee pray, and an angel appeared before him and gave him a divine sword. So he had his normal soldier sword, and then this sword from an angel. So the pictures are all like him on horseback, jewel wielding, looking like a badass, which is very cool. So yeah, he just, that's basically it. Like he he went around with two swords, one which was divine. That is anime bullshit, you're right. Absolute (laughs) anime bullshit. I love it. I love it so much. On a horse, flapping two swords around. Two swords over your head. But he refused to worship the Roman gods. Decius asked him to sacrifice with him to the gods, and he wouldn't. So in some some accounts, Decius just has him like beaten with rods, but then is worried about that creating dissent among the people because Mercurius was really popular. Another version of the story has him stretched over a fire and cut with knives until he bled so much his blood extinguished the fire and then wow. he was put in a jail cell and the next morning his wounds had healed overnight. Mm-hmm. And then either way, after after some torture, and just, you know, whichever version you want to believe, Decius had him shipped off to be beheaded because he didn't want to do it in front of all of the people who liked him because he was very popular, which is pretty cool. But then there is a sequel. A hundred years later, St. Basil was praying before an icon that included a depiction of Mercurius. He was praying that Julian the Apostate wouldn't return home from his war against the Persians because Julian the Apostate was absolutely horrible to Christians and he didn't want him to come back and keep being horrible. So St. Basil's having a wee pray in front of an icon that includes a picture of Mercurius holding a spear. That wee relief of Mercurius disappeared for a few moments, and then when it reappeared, the spear was covered in blood. (gasps) And at, I guess, we're supposed to assume the exact same time, (laughs) Julian the Apostate is in battle, and some random soldier gored him with a spear and then disappeared. And then he later died of those injuries. Wow. Which is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah. Good for that picture. It's very Harry Potter, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Maybe that's where JK got her from. (laughs) Okay, my next one is another Desert Father and is, I'd say, possibly the most famous Desert Father these days. Um, Have you ever heard of Simeon Stylites? No. No, I've never heard of many saints. (laughs) He's great. So he has a very similar situation to Anthony in that he wants to spent his life living in devotion to God. This is before monasteries really exist. So he takes himself out into the desert. He's Syrian. He lives just just outside of Aleppo. He starts off by doing it for Lent. He he moves into a, a hut and allegedly did not eat or drink for 40 straight days, 40 days and 40 nights. I do not think that that is possible, but then I guess that's why it's a miracle. It, exactly. I do strongly suspect that this might be one of those things where they're like, and then he did not eat brackets meat or drink brackets <laughs> wine 
<laughs> he for survived on bread and water. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but who am I to judge? But he, during that time, during that 40 days, he started seeing how long he could stand up for. Uh-huh. And kind of testing himself and... He enjoyed it so much or got so much like a spiritual pleasure out of it that he moved himself into a very narrow hut. Is this so the that guy physically... that ends up on a pole? It is a guy. Yes. Yes. Okay. I do know him. Yes. Carry on. <laughs> so he's in a narrow hut, but uh-huh. uh, people start coming out of the city to see him. So partly this is a tourist thing. People like to go and see desert fathers and go and see uh, desert monks just to, because they're kind of odd. Mm-hmm. But also, as Roman power is kind of falling apart um, in the East, monks end up taking the place of like local patrons. Mm-hmm. So generally, if you had a problem in the countryside anywhere in the Roman Empire, you would go to the person who like owned the most land in your area or who owned the land that you farmed and would be like, this person stole my sheep and I need you to make him give me back my sheep. And I was reading Pliny the Younger this week and he has this letter about he's gone to one of his villas and people keep coming and asking him questions and he's really irritated by it. But that's what they used to do. And then when those kind of structures decline, like as people stop visiting their faraway lands or they sell them or they're broken up or they just disappear because they're fighting in wars, monks take these places. So people will go out to the guy in the desert and be like, he stole my sheep. You pick who who owns this sheep. Make him give it back to me. Which is really annoying. And so he started, he moved again to another ruined town just in Syria and started standing on a broken column. <laughs> so it's a broken 10 foot column, which is what he stands starts standing on. But people keep coming and shouting up to him. And so over the years, he spends 40 years doing this. So over the years, he starts finding and then building higher and higher columns <laughs> to, to just stand get away on. from everyone. In order to get away from everybody and in order to be able to control the amount of people that are coming and talking to him. By the time he dies, he is standing on a a pillar that is 50 foot high. (laughs) That is impressive. And his like handlers, the people who send food up to him, have had to build a, a double wall around him in order to control the crowds. <laughs> he will not let women through the crowd through the walls at all. Like he won't talk to women, including his own mother. <laughs> So, but men men are allowed to come through, like they have to get through basically layers of security and then they're allowed to climb up a ladder to go and ask him questions. But there's basically an entire complex is built around him and his, which means that 100% there's like food stands and tourist stuff and you can buy a souvenir that says, I saw Simon Stylites. (laughs) (laughs) And like Emperors go to see him, Pope Leo the First, Leo the Great writes to him. Everybody is fascinated by looking at him and he is just standing, getting presumably some kind of blood clot situation going on. But eventually he dies of natural causes. He just keels over while he is praying and drops dead. But 40 years he spends trying to get away from people and standing on on higher and higher pillars <laughs> in order to get away from all those people coming and being like, Oi, will you do my land dispute for me? <laughs> 
I mean, it's fair enough. I would, I would also climb up a pole to get away yeah. from that sort of nonsense. There's also a lot of people who copy him in, like, basically to try and get the fame. So there's a story at the beginning when he starts and he starts getting people from the, like, bishops from the church of, of Aleppo go in to talk to him and they order him to come down from his first pillar because they think if he refuses, then they'll know that he's doing this for pride and they know, they'll know that he's doing it because he wants fame rather than out of any real yeah. religious subservience. But he immediately comes down and it's like, oh God, sorry. And then they're like, okay, no, you can go back up. We were just testing you. <laughs> like, as, as you have uh, agreed that we are still the authorities, that's okay. You can go back up now. <laughs> yeah, just don't quote. We just want to make sure that you're not trying to, yeah. Yeah, but loads of people would definitely do. There are four Simon Stylites over the years, Simeon Stylites of various different places who call themselves Simeon and stand on a pillar, but he is the original and the best. Great. Outstanding. Yeah. My next one is a guy called Moses the Black, also known as Moses the Strong, Moses the Robber, and Moses the Ethiopian. All great names. All great names. <laughs> um, yeah. So he lived from 330 to 405. Um, he was Ethiopian and he was enslaved in Egypt. He was the slave of an e Egyptian official. But eventually he just got kicked out because of theft, which I mm -hmm. think is fair enough. If you're a slave, steal stuff. Like, you don't, the system isn't working. I, I for think you. you should be allowed to steal as much as you like if you're enslaved. Yeah. Absolutely. Like if you're not being given payment, take payment. Mm. That's That seems fine to me. But after, so after he was turned away by his master, he led a gang of 75 thieves. Excellent. Like the brutal thieving gang. There's a story that everyone loves apparently because it's it's the, the only real specific example of his thieving life where he, um, like a dog, barked while he was trying to do a robbery, wanted to get revenge on the dog's owner. So he swam across the Nile with a sword in his teeth, but he couldn't find the dog's owner. So instead he stole four of his sheep and then swam back <laughs> with the sheep over, across, again, across the Nile. With a sword oh, again in his hell between his teeth, which is pretty badass. Yeah. At some point, probably because he took refuge there to hide from the authorities, he found this monastery and converted to Christianity and just started living there, which again, I think is fair enough. You know, you've been a slave, then you've been living by thievery, which is exhausting and stressful. And then you find mm -hmm. this place where everyone just has a chill time gardening. I would stay. I would stay yeah. there. Yeah. So he stays there. At the very least, they feed you. They feed you, <laughs> exactly. You don't have to worry about anything. They don't make yeah. you do work you don't want to do. And so he just lives there for the rest of his have his life. At some point, a group of thieves attack the monastery. Um, they attack him in his cell and he overpowers them. And he didn't know what to do with them because he was pretty sure that he wasn't supposed to kill them. So mm -hmm. he takes him to the other monks and he's like, I'm, I'm not allowed to kill them, right? What do I do instead? And the monks are like, well, <laughs> Just you've, a double you've, check. you forgive them because, you know, and, that, and that's fine. So then all of those thieves also converted and lived at the monastery <laughs> from then on, which is great. There's a story about a demon just wanging him across the legs, just hitting him really hard and leaving him like bedridden for a few days and then not fully recovered for the rest of his life. Like he suffered from illness the rest of his life after that. Um, mm -hmm. And then when the monastery was on the point of being invaded by barbarians, which some versions can't claim he foresaw, others just, I mean, maybe maybe they were just on the horizon. He, <laughs> <laughs> he made all of the other monks leave because he did not think it was fitting for men who had lives of peace to die violently. So he was Aww. like, you run off and I will fight these barbarians because I ha 
I have lived a violent life, so it's appropriate that I die violently. So he died yep. uh, defending the monastery from barbarians. Well, good for him. Yeah. Yeah, saved himself from being enslaved and protected a monastery. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, good Moses. <laughs> My next one, I'll go back to the beginning. A very, very early saint, one of the very earliest from one who hung out with St. Paul of that St. Paul <laughs> of writing all the letters and being a challenging person to be around Paul. <laughs> being a deranged fanatic. Yeah. So one day Paul is preaching in, in Turkey and he uh, is preaching in a public place and a young woman called Thekla, who lives with her mother and is engaged to a young man, um, hears him preaching from the window. And the main thing that Paul preached about, as you'll know if you've ever read the Pauline letters, not the Deutero-Pauline letters, but the original Pauline letters, is that he was very against marriage <laughs> and thought that everybody should immediately give up being married and should give up being sex, having sex and any kind and that everybody... The time for go forth and multiply was over and now it was time to stop that immediately and prepare for the return of Christ. Oh, he was such an so uber So that's virgin. what he was preaching. <laughs> and Thecla took this very much to heart. And after a couple of days of listening to him, she started to mention this kind of thing to her mother. So her mother had Paul arrested and thrown into prison and Thecla escaped from her house, visited Paul in prison and then refused to leave him and insisted upon staying with him in the prison until such time as he was released. What that meant was that she was just arrested and condemned to death by burning. Paul was just expelled from the city. The main thing that people did to Paul <laughs> for a long time was just go, can you do this somewhere else, please? Uh, Fair enough. <laughs> please do not make this our problem. Um, and so he just gets expelled from cities constantly. But Thecla, being a local woman, was condemned to death and they're planning on burning her to death. They tie her up. They put all of the logs around her. They her on fire and then a sudden miraculous storm comes through and puts out all of the flames meaning that she can untie herself escape flee the city she goes to where paul is she finds him in the next city over and she joins him as one of his followers mm -hmm. and while she's following him which i'm around, sure he loved because he was such a fan of women he loved it <laughs> he definitely wasn't like uh, uh. <laughs> Stand over there, 10 feet away. <laughs> Don't ask any questions because you're a woman. Yeah, absolutely. So she's following him around. They get to Antioch of Caesarea, which is not that Antioch. It is a different one. <laughs> but while they are there, a local nobleman tries to rape Thecla. So she's sexually assaulted. And mm -hmm. while she is fighting him off, she tears his cloak, which means that he is able to have her arrested for assaulting him. <laughs> sure, classic which is a real insight into the gender politics of the ancient world and also the social politics of the ancient world. <laughs> but she is arrested for assault, for assaulting a nobleman, and she is condemned to death for it. Uh -huh. So she is thrown to the beasts in Antioch of Caesarea, where several miracles occur. First, they expose her to a lioness and a bear, and the lioness protects her and kills the bear. Then they let out a lion mm -hmm. to to try and get her, but the lioness fights off the lion and they both die in the fight. So there is a massive fight to the death between lions, which honestly sounds like a kind of better watch than <laughs> anything else. <laughs> 
she's then released and then and this is the main reason that I included this story to be honest she then baptized herself in the middle of the arena by throwing herself into a pool shouting I am hereby baptized which shocked everybody because the pool was filled with aggressive murder seals <laughs> who everybody thought was going to eat her, but at the exact moment that she shouted she was baptised, magic lightning hit all of the seals at once and killed them. And did not kill her even though she was in the water? Ah, but Janina, she was cloaked in a cloud of fire that protected her wet nakedness from being seen and also protected her from the lightning. Perfect. Yes. And it... You do not often see people being thrown to water animals in the ancient world and you very rarely see seals because seals don't eat people. No. They will chase you sometimes. Yeah, but... But, yeah, they're not... (laughs) And just as a... Like, having been in a Roman arena, it just doesn't feel like that's a great show. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like a lot of work. They've obviously got to, like, dig a pool big enough for the seals bringing water that seems like a lot and then what are you going to see just a lot of splashing anyway she saved herself from being eaten by murder seals then was covered in a cloud of fire that was so amazing that nobody could see her naked and also it protected her so her chastity was also saved very important Mm -hmm. and eventually the governor is just so baffled by what has occurred and has no idea what to do that he just lets her go (laughs) and it's like that is fair Like, we've lost a lot of money on this. It's a lot of seals and a lot of lions and a bear. And I don't know if you could say that they lost money either because people got an entertaining show. Like, they, they didn't did get, get an, an entertaining execution, show. but, I mean, they got magic lightning. They're going to be talking about that for a long time. They are. Yeah. Paul, during this time, has just left. which i also find really funny and she spends months like walking around trying to find out where he's gone and she finds him a few cities over and this time she's like i'm gonna deal with this i'm gonna disguise myself as a man so she cuts her hair short and puts on a man's cloak Mm -hmm. and turns up to see paul and he's like oh hey (laughs) (laughs) and is fundamentally unimpressed by everything that has happened to her but says she can go off and preach if she wants to and he will give her like uh, two double thumbs up so she goes around and preaches specifically to women for a few years and then she moves into a cave Mm -hmm. where she lives for 27 years at one point some romans try to send people to arrest her and their caves magically move so that they can't (laughs) find her in there which is cool And then, and eventually she dies. But she goes and sees Paul's grave before the last time she dies. But yeah, basically I've included her because she kills the seals and that's funny. That's very good. That's very good. Also, she was friends with Paul and she had cooler things happen to her than being blinded briefly. Yeah. Also, to the great horror of various people that I know, I hate seals. I find them to be repulsive and horrible. (laughs) And seeing them makes me want to be sick. So, uh, (laughs) I mean, they can be. Maybe I just like that story. They will. They don't don't get too. Everyone thinks they're funny and cute, but they will chase you down and they can be quite scary when they do it. (laughs) And also, the way they move is repulsive. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they're going to lose listeners for this because people are very sensitive about how much I hate seals. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. You're to your next one. My last one is. A woman called Kateria. Uh, Kateria, mm-hmm. she's a second-century Portuguese saint, very implausible saint. 
but I love her. So uh, according to tradition, she was born, and this is where the problems start. She was one of non-uplet sisters. And just just so you're aware of how much of a problem it makes this whole story, the earliest known case of non-uplets all surviving infancy are currently not yet three years old. Mm-hmm. They were born in, there is a set of non-uplets that were born in 2021. They are the first non-uplets known to have survived infancy. That's so, so um, many babies, yeah. So many babies. I think the first case of, of septuplets that survived infancy is like the 90s. So this is, in, with modern medicine, it's very difficult for this amount of multiple yeah. births to, to survive and for the mother to survive. But uh, It must the, be so little. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Kijaria and her eight sisters all survived, according to this story. But her mother was disgusted by this. Her father was a Roman official and his wife was, a, you know, a highborn woman. I don't know. There's no, none of the stories I read had any idea who she was. She was the wife of a Roman <laughs> they official. Really do. And yep. she considered herself too fancy to have nine babies at once. She thought that was the sort of thing a peasant would do or mm-hmm. a, an animal, which I guess is kind of accurate. So she ordered all nine of the babies drowned. But the maid who she tasked with this disobeyed and gave them to a local woman to raise. And they were brought up by this random local woman as Christians. But when they were adults, they were brought before their father who recognized them as his children through the magic magic of genetics, I guess, who just saw them and knew that they were his daughters. That is a real trope of Roman era Greek language romance novels for mm-hmm. what it's worth. The child is given up. Very often the child ends up in a brothel and then the father will recognise them while visiting the brothel. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, but that is a, <laughs> a, a romance novel trope. Yeah. This is going to be more fun than a romance novel though. Okay. Not that romance novels are not fun, but this is a different kind of fun. Mm-hmm. So once his once this Roman official has his nine daughters back, he obviously wants to marry them off to other fancy Roman men. But all nine rebelled, so he locked them up in a tower, upon which they free, they escaped and freed everyone else he'd imprisoned and started a guerrilla campaign against the Roman Empire. They particularly went around trying to free other imprisoned Christians, which is great, badass. They just operated out of the hills, doing some guerrilla warfare as these nine, you know, 20-something-odd children. That is extremely cool. Like, it's I very would cool. watch a movie about that. <laughs> right? Yeah. I couldn't find what happened to most of them, but I think two of the others have been are also saints. But uh, Kijira cool. was eventually caught and beheaded, but then she picked up her head and climbed a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> and, and said, please, yep. be, please bury me here. One of the other sisters, uh, Euphemia, was running away from Roman soldiers and she they chased her to the top of a cliff. She threw herself off rather than be caught and was swallowed by a rock and then the, a hot spring sprang forth in their spot where she was swallowed by a rock, which is also very cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. it. That's, that's all I've got. <laughs> you see, this is what I'm saying. You really don't get the stuff with the modern saints. Like, you don't get people picking up their own head. Nope. Uh, <laughs> and climbing a mountain with it. Yeah. And then being like, bury me here. <laughs> yeah. That's so much better. It's so much better. Okay. My last one. We're back to Rome. And we... Uh, St. Eugenia of Rome 
who is about third century. She is once again a noble woman. Um, her chamberlains, so like the people who are in charge of her wardrobe, convert her to Christianity, mm-hmm. and she decides that she's not really interested in being like persecuted or anything like that. That's so true. I'm she... not really interested in being persecuted either. Yeah, but so she uh, disguises herself as a man and runs away and enters some kind of monastic community, which they're kind of relatively unclear of what it is, but enters a monastic community of men and lives there as a man for several decades uh-huh. to the extent that she eventually becomes the abbot of this uh, <laughs> of this monastery. Yeah, and is in charge of it, therefore. It all comes apart when she... <laughs> this bit is is handed off as though this is a thing that just everybody could do in the past. So it just says, she cured a woman of some illness. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I, it might well be that she cured them like with medicine. So she cures this woman, and the woman is so happy about it that she makes a sexual pass at Eugenia, uh-huh. who rebuffs her, and is like, no, 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 I'm a monk, please leave me alone. But in revenge out of the from being rebuffed, the said woman goes to the court and accuses her of adultery, which is something that is punishable by death. Mm-hmm. So she's taken to court where she discovers that her father is the judge. Uh-huh. Her father being the judge, she basically takes all of her clothes off. She rips open her cloak and exposes herself and says, I am female, so I cannot have committed this sin like she has just described this terrible thing that I have done, but I'm not, look. At which point everybody goes, oh my God, uh, we had no idea. We're so sorry. Her father immediately converts to Christianity because he's so impressed. Uh-huh. And then she goes off and starts a female and is like, okay, well, I'll just guess that this now this jig is up. I'll, I'll, uh, I'm going to start a female community and sets herself up as an abbess and leads a female community Great. Of, of little saints instead, which I think is hilarious. That yes. she, <laughs> uh, it's just like, uh, well, I guess this is up. <laughs> I think that that is all of our, our stories of, of badass saints. Yeah. Most of whom just endured and occasionally did amazing miracles. And occasionally just were kind of cool. Yeah. And also clearly blessed us because at the end of that, my laptop turns itself off and we did not lose any of that recording. So <laughs> maybe Which this is, is proof of, of something after all. <laughs> yeah. Saints are real. Miracles are real. Yeah, which would have surprised me because both of us very much grew up in non-saint-based religious yeah. worlds before yeah. this. <laughs> I grew up thinking saints were bizarre. Baffling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I guess they were here for us today. Yeah, thank you, whichever saint did that for us. Uh, <laughs> There's got to be a patron saint of laptops, right? I bet there is. There's a patron saint of most things. Somebody can yeah. tell us who it is. Yeah. Patron saint of podcast recordings. <laughs> <laughs> okay next time janina we're going to be doing one that is also very much a comfort zone for me mm-hmm. from maria weiler who asked very simply what did they eat in ancient rome yeah that's a good question yeah, which is a fun question so i can tell you all about the roman recipe books that i have yeah and how recently italy got tomatoes yeah no tomatoes yeah. at all that is a uh, no tomatoes no garlic <laughs> <laughs> No chili. Yeah. No loads of stuff that you would very much associate with Italian food now. So Yeah. Yeah. That'll be that'll be good. Yeah, it will be fun. Where can people find us, Janina? 
You can find us at historyat60.com. Everything you need is there. Links to our social and uh, to our Ko-fi where you can support us. There's a wee form if you want to ask us a question um, for something for us to research for you. And links to our merch, which at some point we are talking about doing a wee shake-up of at some point in the next few weeks. Yeah. So, so if there's anything, anything that you have meant to buy, then now is your chance. Yeah, because yeah. it may disappear. We can only have a limited number of stuff, amount of stuff on there at one time. So as we bring in new stuff, the stuff is going to disappear. Yes. But if you want to buy us coffee, if you want to buy merch, if you want to do it, ask us a question, historyasexy.com is where you need to be. And until next time, bye, Janina. Bye. Bye. Thank you to Anna Helmkin and Sandra and Sarah Jones and uh, Neve, uh, Connor W, uh, Franzi, Joanna, Ida, Emily Funk Funk Funk, great name, Amanda Hendrickson, and three people who have stayed anonymous, so I won't read your names out, but to the three of you who support us as Kofi supporter, you are enormously appreciated, so thank you very much. <laughs>